We're almost there. We're almost all there, aren't we? So you're not feeling 100% today. Got mum flu. I'm dying. I'm going to make things easy for you today and I'm going to, you're going to be able to sit back and relax. I'm going to drive things today, give you lots of cool things to talk about and you don't have to do any of the heavy lifting today, Sam Jax. That sounds fantastic. Are we still going to talk about Elon selling digital real estate via Twitter? Yeah, well, that, that's what I want to talk about today, because it's just so up our street in terms of what Elon Musk is doing with Twitter at the moment. It just seems a bit mad not to, like, just talk about it, because things are moving so fast in the world of Twitter. Like, we're recording this at the end of November 22. By the time this comes out, like... <laughs> Things could change. Everything's been so fast moving. And what Elon's been doing at Twitter since he's taken over is doing hardcore optimization, essentially. And I think as people who've been talking about it, you know, since we've we've begun this series, it's just worth looking at the timeline of events of what's happened since Elon's taken over Twitter and, and kind of giving it our two penny on whether that's good or bad in terms of optimization and, and kind of looking at some of the reactions. Because... This is so unprecedented. <laughs> you don't see billionaires taking over publicly traded companies that are so much in the the world spotlight like this. So it, it's definitely like an interesting cultural moment or movement that's going on, right? Yeah. Can I do the easy bit, which is uh, current state before Elon got his hands on it, what Twitter was? Because I think it's probably help, helpful also to say what twi- Twitter is a platform is basically it's a pretty simple platform but it's a website or was a website there is an app there are apps now but a bit of html a bit of jquery a bit of back end and, and basically a platform where people can go and share text and then what what makes it different from all the other platforms is that you can follow anybody it's not it's not like facebook where you have a friend request or instagram where you can request to follow someone and potentially their account can be private that's what's interesting about it is it's just open you you just tweet into the void it's very very open in the way it's designed and before elon got his hands on it 234 ish million users so i mean the uk is what like 70 80 million people so it's what four times three times the the size of the uk in terms of users like if everyone in the uk had three accounts that's that's how many people are on it that's a lot of people about seven and a half thousand employees which i think we're definitely going to dig into like that good bad or indifferent not anymore yeah well yeah Uh, that that's where it was essentially when you break down what twitter was at least it, it was a brand it was some software that really you know, I only had copyright to protect it. Uh, yeah, there's a clever algorithm for serving up the content, which I imagine they've got a patent on. But basically, it was a, a movement and a brand where all the value of it was all these people have signed up to be on the platform. And and that's a, how a lot of tech startups get their money is just like, well, users are worth a couple of pounds hypothetically, and that's why they can borrow loads of money and never generate any revenue. And that's what Twitter had been doing for so long because they get value, you get these massive valuations because they've managed to attract all these people to the platform. They don't necessarily have to be profitable because hypothetically all that data is worth money. And I, w- I'll, I think I'll stop there because we're going to talk about monetization and all that other good stuff. But that's that's basically what Twitter is. Have you read um, Hatching Twitter? Have you read Hatching Twitter at all? I have not. Uh, by Nick, 
Nick Bilton. It's a really good biography, fact-driven, based on interviews, etc. Like the story of Twitter from like the beginning stages when it was just, you know, a, a group of gung-ho software developers, you know, working all hours at Godsend's in Silicon Valley, trying to make, you know, something really good. And then um, it kind of covers the story about how they all ended up, well, one ended up, Jack. <laughs> Jack Dorsey ended up getting control of Twitter from from the others after going and coming back again. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely had like a shaky start in terms of, ownership and direction and I think uh, in the beginning it was very much thought that Twitter was going to be this product that would take over from Facebook as the the kind of the status update right and just be quick and easy and allow people to just get a quick hit of what's going on and it's what drove celebrities and politicians to the platform. It's very light it's very light as a user experience and it's very light in the tech as well it's not got heavy tech has it in uh, to to operate as a platform and if i recall in the beginning because I, I i literally signed up to twitter within the first six months so I, i've been there like oh, wow. yeah like a really long time even though my current account is from 2018 the account i had previously that i deleted just because it had so much history that i didn't i didn't want when i set up my own business anymore like no one needed to see my old tweets about x factor and you know things like that right but it was like celebrities like Stephen Fry adopting it and showing us all how to use it that I think really helped in, in the UK in particular. Like no one knew what a hashtag was, but, you know, like a couple of mavens like that were able to kind of teach us all. So once we got the language of how Twitter works, hashtags worked, and then like, you know, what's the retweet, what's the mention, like just those those few simple actions can kind of help create a kind of an amazing network effect of getting information out there, getting opinions. Like a social, a socially accepted dynamic, kind of like when you attend a party, you say hello to people and you ask how they are, ask how the family were. Like there's, there's like a, a socially acceptable way to exist in the world, isn't there? Right? Yeah. Once that had been established for Twitter, that's when it started to grow. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I feel like um, the best analogy I ever heard about Twitter as a social media platform was it's like the equivalent of someone uh, you you being in a room in a party with like millions of other people and you're all just shouting out your own thing and then occasionally someone else in that room is shouting out a similar thing and then you can connect with each other and and kind of talk which when you put it like that it just sounds a bit demented really but sounds a bit obnoxious doesn't it (laughs) Yeah. But the users that are on there are, are very, very engaged. I mean, the the people that use it are, are let's high net worth individuals relative to other platforms. I mean, they're not builders, brickies, stay at home, like normal people. They're, they're a lot of the sort of people that are attracted to Twitter are people that have a vested interest in a public profile, which you know by that nature they're, they're typically running. They have their own monetization ability. They're not reliant on salaries necessarily. So. That's given us a bit of the history. Twitter starts March 2006-ish, has this up and down rocky road of history, which, you know, we can probably talk about another day. And then Elon comes along. Wow, you know, many, many years later, though, you know, and in between that time, what we've seen is Twitter become publicly traded, go through a couple of high-profile CEOs, Jack being one of them, seeing some incredibly high-profile people come to the platform, you know, like Trump, and use that platform for... I think nefarious reasons. I mean, I know like Americans love freedom of speech, but 
uh, you know, if you have command of a hundred million plus audience, like you do have some <laughs> responsibilities there. And I think what we saw around the 2016 ongoing period on Twitter was just what happens when you give one or two individuals all the attention on that platform without kind of any consequences, you know. And so what what's happened over the past couple of years in sort of backlash to I think what Trump's done mostly is he got removed. He got removed by the the kind of the, the Twitter team in a kind of very precedented way, which, you know, enabled other social platforms to remove him as well. And then there was a bit of calm on the platform, I think, since he got removed. Um, he got removed because specifically it was deemed that he kind of encouraged his supporters to to kind of go march on Capitol Hill. Yeah, storm the Capitol, as it were, and possibly create a an insurrection, which is, you know, not not good, not good for a society to have people rising like that. And Trump went, he went and set up his own platform called Truth Truth Social. And things kind of went a bit quiet on the Twitter front. But Elon Musk started tweeting a lot more on there and, and kind of definitely grew a following. And someone joking, jokingly said to him, would you buy Twitter? And that sort of put into action a chain of events, really, that has led to him actually buying the platform and taking it over. I know we're giving a, a long preamble to, you know, the events we want to talk about, but I think something I, I'd just like to highlight is Elon Musk makes these grand statements around, well, it just makes sense. We want to be multi-planetary because... Being on one planet is obviously a bit of a risky thing for the human species. Like he, that's a bit, that's a big, relative to what we're capable of or were capable of when he started SpaceX. Big statement: all cars should be electric because you know better for the planet if we're not burning as much fossil fuel. Like big statements. And PayPal wants to change banking of the well. It was actually Zip Pay, wasn't it, or Zip Two, and then it became Zip Pay. Like wants to change banking infrastructure. Like he he wants to disrupt these systems, and for another day, the Trump thing is specifically very interesting because Elon Musk's grandfather was a technocrat. Believed that essentially, technologists, engineers, scientists should run the world, not politicians. And I find it fascinating that he's going. I'm going to let this politician make a fool of himself, um, or be very divisive at least, you know, because he's. he's 50% of the population think he's great, of the US population, 50% don't-ish. And I think it's fascinating that he is acquiring all this control and power. But yeah, that's just as an aside. I don't think we want to focus on that. I think we want to get into the operations of his business, the operations of Twitter and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, but I mean, I think it helps to know that like, you know, he he does come from a family of technocrats and, and definitely I think that, you know, informs his his direction as an entrepreneur. But yeah, I mean, he tweeted back in March asking people with a poll that got like around 2 million votes. Uh, free speech is essential to a functioning democracy. Do you believe Twitter rigorously adheres to this principle? You know, it got people talking and him continually criticising, you know, whether people can actually have a voice on Twitter or not was definitely a, a kind of a catalyst to have more attention on him and, you know, Twitter as well. Two million votes on Twitter, to put that in perspective, that's like more or less 1% of all Twitter users. It's a big poll, and I think he knew what he was doing back then. I think he, he tweeted that out, like, March, I think, and then turns out a week later, <laughs> he ends up with a 9% stake in the company. 
he's either bought into it or it's been revealed. Who, who knows, right? And he's invited to join the board of directors. And then another week later, the CEO, Parag Agrawal, announced that Musk had declined to uh, join the board of directors. And then another week later, so this had all happened in the space of two to three weeks, he makes an offer to purchase Twitter for $43 billion, which is around about $54 a share, and take the company private. So I'm not in any way under the illusion that this was all an accident. Okay, I believe like he he knew what he was doing. You know, he's a businessman. He trades at a very high level. He understands markets. He understands share price. He understands how takeovers work. So and this had all happened within a couple couple of weeks. And you know what? The cheek of it, he even put a poll out. He said taking Twitter private at $54 should be up to the shareholders, not the board. Three million votes on that one. So, you know, he's like using polls to kind of get feedback real time from people. By April 25th, the board had accepted his offer, basically. And then we have a little bit of drama over the summer because Musk says he doesn't want to pay for it because he believes that a big share of Twitter's daily users are bots. And so that goes into a summer of back and forth with Twitter, Twitter taking him to court, and then him finally deciding to kind of go ahead with the purchase last month in October 2022. But we got treated to lots of interesting stuff that the the kind of court had acquired during that process, like tweets between him and Jack Dorsey, tweets between him and other like high profile CEOs and billionaires as well, you know, getting a vibe about what people thought of Musk and his decision to acquire Twitter as well. I still don't think we know quite why he decided to acquire Twitter, like to be honest with you. I think he sees it as an interesting challenge. He said recently that it's not a software company. He said it's a servers and communication company. And as someone who heads up you know, a, a space comms company with like Starlink, as someone who you know works in self-drive cars, and cars in general, like, and that are networked up. He's better place to work on fixing a business like Twitter than perhaps the, the kind of broken way that, that Twitter was before. And we know it was broken because he highlighted the bot situation and also how much money Twitter was losing as well. Let's dig into that a little bit. So let's scale it back. Say you're going to go on microacquire or somewhere like that and buy yourself a little business. Let's say it's a website business, affiliate marketing. They typically sell for 30 to 40 times monthly revenue. So let's say you've got a website that's making a £1,000 a month from traffic to it through SEO sales. That's going to sell between 30 and 40 grand. That kind of makes sense. Twitter's valuation, the 44 billion, of which I think he stumped up about 30, 30 odd billion of his own money and then loaned the rest. They ain't turning over anywhere near that kind of revenue. In fact, they were losing like $4 million a day. So much cash. Yeah, so much cash every single day. And, it, you know, the model before he took over was revenue from advertisers, right? Predominantly revenue from advertisers. So keeping advertisers sweet, m- selling to them, having sales teams all around the world to sell to local advertisers, companies, businesses, agencies, massive part of their business model. That costs money to do. You've got to have premises all around the world. You've got to network with agencies. You've got to network with brands. You've got to employ people. And, you know, the costs were just driving up and up and up. I mean, it's no wonder 
Twitter said when all all of the pandemic and the work from home kind of revolution happened. Oh, we're letting everyone work from home now because they probably couldn't afford to heat the offices anymore. Do you know what I mean? It's bonkers because when when you look at SaaS, the reason SaaS uh, software as a service is so appealing is because one, two, less than 10 people typically to knock up a, a, a software solution, about 20% of that to support it thereafter. And Twitter hasn't changed that much. And yeah, okay, they've added on all these layers of services, but there's a lot of bloat in there. And I, and I just want to come back to what I said at the beginning, the disassociation from tech startup valuations to actual business valuation. And I think now as the world is getting more and more tech savvy, people are kind of looking up the skirt of these tech businesses going, hang on a minute. Yeah, okay, you're all really smart, but uh, your business fundamentals aren't that great. Like, <laughs> and I think that's a lot of what Elon Musk has gone in and done. He he understands network effect, and I think it's just something that has always always blown my mind. Is it's one of the network effects? Metcalf's law. A guy, Richard Metcalf, invented Ethernet cards. And he essentially had this problem selling Ethernet cards because they were a few thousand dollars. And you buy yourself, go back to 60s, 70s, you buy yourself a computer. It doesn't speak to anything. You buy an Ethernet card for a couple of grand. Great. Well, what do you plug it into? Oh, my printer. Well, now you need an Ethernet card for your printer. Okay, well, you just spent six grand so that your computer can talk to your printer. In th- you know, hypothetically, because you probably wouldn't connect them that way. But the point is you, you have this linear cost that every time you add a card, you you get an extra, call it $3,000. And he, he's trying to sell these cards to people and people are going, well, what? I, I'm not seeing the v- return here on spending £3,000 and getting things to talk to each other. And he thinks on this and comes up with Metcalf's Law, which is, ah, oh, no, you're thinking about it all wrong. The problem is you haven't bought enough cards yet to see the value. And it's akin to having a mobile phone. One person with a mobile phone, no use. Two people with a mobile phone can now call each other. You add a third person in, well, one person can now call two people. You add a fourth person in, one person can now call three people. So you've got this linear increase in cost, but this exponential increase in the value of the network. And that was a theory he used to sell his Ethernet cards, but then it was proven with Facebook by some Swedish team, I think, in 2009. And they they proved Metcalf's law is like, every time you add a node to the network, which is a person, a user, you're exponentially increasing the value of this overall network. And when you look at what Elon Musk is doing with Starlink and Tesla, and he's leveraging network effect to the max by connecting all this data he's not a product person in my opinion he's a data network person and that's where he started with with paypal he said right we want a network of users and they were well he was zip pay wasn't he but but then paypal he became ceo and drove it and i just want to bring us back to this valuation this 44 billion dollar valuation a loss of 4 million quid a day roughly i mean the the figures are so big it kind of doesn't matter how far out we are losing money spending a, a load to get it but you've got this massive network potential there and in my head, he is an entirely rational person. He's using other people's emotions, doing these polls to like drive influence. But he's a rational guy. Oh well, yeah, and and he said he's got Asperger's as well. Which did he need to say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, he he's, he announced it, didn't he, on, on Saturday Night Live? But yeah, like it, I think as a personality trait, I get. Well, it's not even it was a personality trait. It just probably helps give him a thick skin in dealing with criticism, right? 
Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of engineers, scientists, type people are, are on a spectrum somewhere, and it's it's a hell of a skill when it comes to logical thinking. You, you have lower social EQ typically, and you usually have higher IQ typically with those. And I, I speak from experience. A lot of my family are Asperger. That's a totally incorrect frame to use, but that condition. And what you find is things are very black and white. Things are either right or wrong. They're very binary. And the data is everything. But what's really interesting with this guy is the way he's overcome his sort of blind side to EQ, to emotion, to that emotional intelligence that sort of Steve Jobs clearly had, where he brought this art and science together. Elon Musk has gone, no, I'm just going to solve problems that are so big that they tap into the fundamental, like, bit of being of people like to be on another planet to save the world with electric cars to be able to have internet anywhere in the world like I can communicate like he's just tackled the problems at such a high level and then he's a geek and just creating uh flamethrowers and or like the Cybertron oh, in the, for the boring company <laughs> yeah he, he just does cool stuff that and and just goes and is a child and I think because of that people kind of find him a little bit endearing because they're like, okay, this guy's crazy. Yeah, but to counter counter that, though, just to to get back to our timeline, right? So he takes over, fires CEO immediately and the kind of like the top team and then goes on to do an absolute cull of the workforce. And it's done in a way, I think it's, I don't think it's him, like some Dr. Evil type person in a mountain doing it. You know, I think this is just the American way, actually. But they send emails out to people and they're like, off you go, see you later. And, you know, cold, a massive chunk of the workforce. And I think that disconnect from the the human element and you know, not recognising the fact that there are people with lives and families behind that you know hasn't has meant that a lot of people aren't endeared to him and I think you know the the way he's just kind of gone in and dug deep and cut deep to get rid of half of all Twitter employees yeah so what's that about nearly 4,000 people yeah and I think it's up to about 75% now since this timeline that I'm reading and I think there's more Coles in the workforce planned as well you know and it, it bloodbath like total removal of whole teams in different regions. Apparently no one's going into the UK office at all. All of the marketing team got totally removed in India. But the thing is, like when you, you know, a lot of this was reported on Twitter by ex tweeps, right? As they, as they sort of call themselves. And one person was hired to do key cards for the San Francisco building. Like that was her job. And she got fired and they had to ask her to come back because everyone had got locked out. But it got me thinking, there was one person hired just to do key cards, you know, and what other bloater kind of happened at the business? And perhaps they had lost sight of that. And as many tech companies are kind of going through like the same situation at the moment, having to realise that that hard growth the trajectory that they they were on has to stop and they have to scale back. And, you know, it's a shame that there's human beings at the end of that. <laughs> so they're not loving Elon as much as perhaps other people are. Yeah, so, so um, right, I'm going to say something and then I'm, I'm going to, like, cover my arse and, 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 and caveat it. <laughs> I'm totally into it. Totally into it. I think he's doing exactly the right thing. However, here's the arse covery bit. There absolutely should be a sensible exit policy where you go, look, this company isn't running correctly. It's not running efficiently. 
And because if it was anyone other than Elon and it was a scrappy startup, like this is normal. Scrappy startups are like, look, it's really dangerous getting into a startup game because there's huge risk and we, you know, we don't know when we're going to make cash. And then companies get comfortable and they get all this bloating. But there is a right way to do it, which is you've got to care for people, you've got to exit them correctly, you've got to make sure that you aren't screwing them. Clearly, that's not Elon's strong point. Clearly, he's really good at the figuring out the logical steps that need to happen. And, and I think we probably want to talk about like why this makes a lot of sense. Just purely academically, notwithstanding there's all these people that have got, or at least feel screwed. I mean, whether they have been or haven't been, that isn't overly clear. Like, I think it's completely reasonable for a com- companies make layoffs all the time. And, and it's a complete paradigm that it's safe to have a job. It's not. You have a contract which has clauses in there to protect the downside risk. But it's on people don't take responsibility for themselves. Uh, you know, you, you see this when governments have large organizations, like in the UK, we've just had it where they've reduced government employees by five or so percent, were they aiming for? Uh, getting rid- And people are like, oh my goodness, you know, like you've got rid of my job. Well, yeah, that sucks. Like it does. But no one ever said that this was like a guarantee for life. And we're human. We're motivated by change. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think in the midst of issues in your business where you are losing money, not making money, and part of that loss of money is on headcount that isn't generating a return on investment. That is the biggest, hardest part of business optimization. I think any business owner needs to go through. My old MD at, um, at the agency I was at, you know, said it never gets easier letting people go. He'd done it countless times. <laughs> it's always like the worst job that you have to do as a business owner. And so, you know, I, I can't imagine anyone's like really happy. Bye, everyone, <laughs> you know, kind of thing like that. But that they are seeing it as an, a necessity to optimize that business and get it making money, especially because as soon as Elon Musk took over, he started as he meant to go on. He's been very jovial. He's posted memes. Like the day he took over, he posted a meme of himself, a a picture of him in a meme where he was holding a sink and walking into the, the Twitter offices. And that relates to a meme that people always posted in the comments under one of his tweets, which was a sink at a door, like let that sink in. It's like a joke. So he he lived that meme, got someone to take a picture, put it on, you know, on day one, right? So, you know, I think like that kind of pitch where he's at as a boss, you know, perhaps hasn't hasn't kind of sat particularly well <laughs> well with people. It comes back to intent, doesn't it? Like if his intent is to save this company and make it everything it's potentially capable of being. I liken it to, you know, a mother and a child on an aircraft and the oxygen mask comes down. The mother has to put on her oxygen mask first to stand a chance of being able to care for the child. You put the child's oxygen mask on, the mother's passed out and no use to the child, cannot save the child anymore. And that's where he's at right now. It's like, okay, like the the child might have to pass out so that I can save it, you know, like, but this is what has to happen. And it's, he's not doing it to screw people the opposite. And yeah, he's got a vision and yeah, he might appear cold and heartless and all those things, but that's a perception of him. I think his intent is quite clearly, as we've seen, he isn't doing things to be self-serving. Like, that's very clear. He is not a happy person. Yeah, I don't even think he wants to make money because he's like practically the richest or the second richest at the time of recording this, right? You know, so I think he's definitely doing it to fix something. I mean, just to bookend like, the, the the staff layoffs, right? It's interesting because 
the former CEO, the, the one before, the one before last, Jack, Jack Dorsey came out and said, I realise many are angry with me about the layoffs because I own the responsibility for why everyone's in this situation because I grew the company size too quickly. So Elon Musk came in to do a job to optimise, but really the issue was was kind of back in the timeline for Twitter. You know, they had a lot of cash from their IPO. They had lots of lavish offices in very fancy locations. You know, the, the London one is in, I think it's Holborn, between Holborn and Covent Garden. You know, San Francisco <laughs> is not cheap. I'm sure New York Granway isn't cheap as well. Lots of jobs to call advertisers. And after Elon Musk had taken over, advertisers were not loving the meme memification of Twitter. They've not also loved his hard stance on free speech. And that means bigging up the Republican and the Democratic sides of the political spectrum in America, because Twitter's been very left-leaning. And also talking about the big one of letting Donald Trump back. And he put a poll out. He put a poll out about that, of course. And the poll, let's have a look and see how many people... Did that poll because it is the problem here is that tech is outpacing the political system and yeah what the hell do you do about that <laughs> so he put a poll out on november the 19th saying reinstate former president trump yes no there was 15 million votes on that 15 million votes and apparently they got rid of a lot of bot votes as well and my understanding looking at some of the tweets from the engineers and him as well was they were using this as a bit of a honey trap to get bots to come to them so they could do lots of exclusions as well which I think is very clever but in the end 51.8% of people voted yes so he let him and a whole bunch of other people back on the platform and I think all banned people will be given amnesty and allowed back on the platform next week as well. Now, this has put advertisers off because advertisers are in a position where they're like, I don't want my tweets next to right-wing information or I don't want my tweets next to someone who has anti-women, anti-Muslim, anti-Jewish sentiments, etc. And rightly so, but he's had to make that decision of do we create Twitter as a platform for advertisers and curtail to advertisers or do we go down the other road? And that, that's another big part of the optimization process that he's going through. So looking at bloat in terms of employees, hard job, tough one. He's been left with a core amount of tweets left to kind of work on the platform. And to your point earlier, do that many people need to work on the core element at Twitter? Because it's built already. It's more like maintaining servers and maintaining speed and load times, right? Yeah, and putting in the capability, any of these new capabilities that you want. So if you want to clean up spam, well, okay, you've got to come up with a way of doing that. If you want to fight AI, okay, well, you've got to come up with a way of doing that. Like, But they're, they're crack teams of less than 10. And you, you would assume after this amount of time, there isn't that much technical debt inside of Twitter. Like it was well built by engineers. So. Apparently there is, but then it depends what the technical debt is. Do you want to explain what technical debt is quickly for anyone listening? Because it's a, it's a techie phrase. Yeah, so basically, you know, you come up with an idea to throw together a, a product or service. So you start coding and it's like writing the first draft of a book and you write the first say two or three paragraphs and they kind of make sense and they kind of get you to you know paragraph four but then rather than go back and rewrite paragraph one to make you know to to correct any errors or changes you want to make you write another paragraph that kind of corrects paragraph one retrospectively and 
this is a very broad brush, not desperately accurate way of saying you end up... We like broad brush. Yeah, you end up with all these errors that are sort of commented out and corrected and you know little comments and spelling mistakes and they're all in there and the end result is you have a book that people buy and is making money you know that's the equivalent of your software product but there's a load of in there that doesn't work desperately well it isn't nice and clean and optimized so what good software engineering practice is is that you will allow time to go back and optimize your code to, to to sort of these collections out. And it gets quite difficult because you can have people with, with speaking in different languages, writing the code, and I'm trying to think, what's the famous, uh, might be Uber has got a load of Spanish in there because they used a Brazilian development team and no one knows what the code's doing. There's quite a lot of these cases and this is how code breaks and you end up with bugs and all this other stuff. And it's quite an expensive thing to do, go back and fix technical debt because typically it's not the person that wrote it that has to go back and look through it. And this is where all these good design principles come back in. But what I will say on the engineering side is Elon Musk is awesome at this. When he was building both Tesla and SpaceX, Typically in, in a manufacturing setting, you'll have designers in an office and you'll have manufacturing teams on in an assembly hall you know, doing production. And he said, no, well, that's clearly stupid because what happens is the people building the things make tweaks and changes because the design isn't quite right and it takes time if it is ever reflected back to the design and support teams. He said, no, co-locate, you go work on the shop floor, you go work in, in the same space. He, he knows how to solve these engineering problems. If I was going to layman's it even more, it's like the equivalent of looking at a really lovely house on a road that's just been built. But if you actually looked at the foundations, there's just things propping up things, propping up things. And it all works and it's solid, but you probably wouldn't have built it like that in the beginning if you could start again from scratch. And I think that's what he's doing. He's looking at, at Twitter and thinking, you know, how can they optimise the, the servers, the load time? Like That's the things he's been talking about. But the business model of relying on advertisers is another part of the optimization as well, clearly, because as soon as he took over, he was like, yeah, we're going to charge people to access Twitter and be verified, essentially. Brilliant. Yeah, great. And like, you know, it was definitely divisive. And I think true Twitter lovers were really interested in having the so-called blue check, because that's what celebs have. Turns out, get this, right? If you knew a guy at Twitter, you could pay for one of those blue checks. In the same way, and this report had come out last week, the week before, Facebook, Meta, had got rid of a bunch of contractors who apparently, because they had access to Facebook's internal operation system, it's called OOPS, they were to let people into accounts and things like that. Some of them had turned that into a racket where if you had been banned from your advertising account or Facebook account by the kind of automated system, you could pay one of these people thousands of dollars to get your account back, basically. So, you know, there are insiders at these big software companies hidden from view because the headcount is so big who are making money and are not adding to the, you know, the much needed trust and, and reputation perhaps they, they haven't had you know and he keeps banging on and on about this you know free speech free speech when he let uh, Trump back he talked about the people have spoken <laughs> the people have spoken like he's so keen on everyone having a voice and being able to fix the things that people say in an automated community driven way rather than having a small group of politically leaning people do that 
on their own at Twitter. Because otherwise it becomes no better than, than you know, uh, a politically leaning newspaper who puts, you know, from a hegemic point of view, puts out, you know, their take on the world. And, and that that's what, you know, Twitter had become in many ways. There's a couple of threads I want to pull on from what you just said. One, let, let's just talk about the blue tick, the buying the blue tick. So they were hemorrhaging, what, four million quid a day. Don't know how much we're making from advertising, but blue ticking, you know, we're talking about a million or so people paying $8 for blue tick. So that's uh, an $8 million increase on the bottom line. Because he said, I found somewhere that he said he was going to, by 2028, aim for a $23 billion annual turnover, which would make the company worth. Jesus Christ, who knows, you know, 10 times that when you look at the valuations. Incredible, incredible. And yeah, okay, maybe lost a few people off platform. But for the most part, that blue tick's valuable because as we've discussed before, you're doing this kind of stuff for visibility to get traffic to get attention and having a blue tick enhances your trust and likability and all those things that go towards having more valuable attention in converting that attention essentially into into revenue in some way and eight dollars neither here nor there and i just think how smart he's just like more than halved his cost base in terms of labor he's immediately gone boom out of thin air there's 120 million dollars a year like straight away, which he needs to service the $12.5 billion loan he took out to help with the financing. But you just think, well, this guy's not messing around. Like, maybe he doesn't care about people. Maybe he does. Maybe he's treating people badly. Maybe he doesn't. But from a pure financial analytical point of view, you're going, this guy is turning this business around quick, sharp, and look how much he's done inside of a month to the finances. Like, we'll see whether his strategy's right. And then the, the other thing I wanted to pull on was you were saying about these people being able to access inside these apps. This is something that personally really interests me because inside of of all these social media platforms is a database and, and Facebook has gone and built their own technology, graph, uh, query language, GraphQL, and, and they've built on Neo4j and I don't fully understand it, but they've built these database technologies which enable them to have all this clever querying techniques, which is, is why the advertising, the targeting, the algorithm is so good. And so there's this database which has got all the users in and all the user IDs and they may be anonymized to a certain level so that people can work on this data without seeing all the information. But somehow you've got to have a control mechanism so that these engineers can get into the software, into the code and look at this information and keep it secure and private you know, that's a genuine technical problem. Someone somewhere has got the master keys. Even if you have, you know, multiple factor authentication for people to go and work on this code, someone somewhere and in a in multi-thousand person company, probably a few people, own the keys for this data. And this data is like the thing that makes the, the platform so valuable. They sell this data. They sell queries on this data. They sell reports on this data. And I just highlight that because... This is a network problem, and I really wonder about... He's been quietly-ish. They've been given the Ukrainians Starlink so that they can maintain internet connection. The Ukrainians have been causing absolute havoc with their drone technologies. And the reason they've had hacks from Russia, like, have been successful, but they've fixed them again. And the reason this is interesting is this is the same technical problem you've got with social media platforms, is that how do you allow this data to exist... 
and be pure, if you like. You, you've got someone like Trump on there. How do you stop that data being manipulated by other actors, other nodes on the network, other bot users maybe that might be nefarious or, or accounts, you know, uh, GANs that have been created? He's solving this technical problem already with Starlink. And I, I think there's a connection there that we maybe won't see it for five or ten years, but in, for, at this end, you look at this system, you've got... Starlink, okay, is this data connection, but he doesn't really control the data that's on there. With Twitter, he's suddenly got an interface to this data. And then with Neuralink, he's got an interface to the communication platform. I think there's there is a, there's got to be a master plan here. But the thing that is also said that I don't have the depth of technical knowledge to unpick and I haven't yet fully understood is that he's come out and said, don't want to talk to anyone else about how Twitter could be on the blockchain. I don't want to discuss how it can be decentralized because it can't. Now, I've, I've read this a few different times. Other people have quoted him saying it, which kind of goes against this idea that he wants it to be a, a truth network because that means that it's centralized in the way I just described and you have these technical problems. So, I mean, th these are more questions than answers and it's not about optimization. I guess what I'm saying is he's got a chessboard and he's got he's made some big moves with these big bits of technology. We've previously said that optimization is is really it comes down to the decisions you make ultimately your your fundamental decision making, and his fundamental decision making here is make it profitable, generate more revenue, reduce my costs. Like that's what he's done, and he's done it at whatever the cost, like it might not look pretty. And we've seen him do this before. We start with uh, SpaceX, like S SpaceX had three rockets blow up and then he managed to scramble and get all the spare parts together and did a fourth. Like that was a that was a car crash or a rocket crash as the case may be. We saw it with Tesla, like the batteries were overheating, they delayed on the Roadster, they then went back to all the people that ordered the Roadster and it was delayed and said, actually, we've got to charge you more money. We then saw Tesla like, very nearly crash into the ground multiple times. We only didn't say it with PayPal because he, he learned that mistake very early on that, well, I, I need to be in control. He wasn't in control of PayPal, but it gave him the, the capital to get started. Like the guy's got a history of doing this, of, you know, creating chaos because he, he can see a bigger picture. And it's only retrospectively that you get to go, oh, Jesus Christ, that was smart. Either it's a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your viewpoint, right? Is that in this ongoing, you know, crash bang optimization that he's doing, so introducing the blue check being one of them, right? Um, letting, you know, uh, culling a big section of the, the workforce being another one. Across Twitter and in his other companies as well, is that he, he's done this in public, you know, he's he's very much done this with like the, the world's eye on him. And I think the blue check is a really great example of a product that was shipped way too quickly. Like we heard stories of people sleeping on the floors at Twitter to kind of get it out. And within like the first few days of it being shipped, people were buying the blue tick because it was like $8 or whatever, and then pretending to be other people. So in live real time, they they were kind of putting out the decrees and and changes to the rules like if you're a parody account you have to say parody and Kathy Griffin got her account banned because she said she was Elon Musk but all fun all fun and games right all fun and games but then someone had put out that they were Eli Lilly 
the massive pharmaceutical company with a blue check and had tweeted something along the lines of, hey, all our insulin is free now or something like that, right? Oh, they said, we are excited to announce insulin is free now. And the message apparently got retweeted more than a couple of thousand times, got like over 10,000 likes. And it looked at first glance like a real message uh, from from Lily. And they had to issue, They ne- I've worked with pharma companies a very long time. They never issue apologies. And they had to issue an apology and say this was a, a fake Lily account. However, however, right, it looked like on that day, Lily shares crashed 6% and wiped like billions of dollars <laughs> from its market cap, right? And I, I, again, as an independent company, as an advertiser, as someone's thinking, am I going to invest like this love in Elon's vision when his crash bang approach to optimization can have massive effects on the market like this? You know, re- <laughs> remains to be seen, really. The rest of us we build quietly. We might talk about it on Twitter, but we don't have like 100 plus million people following us, right? And other software companies, when they launch new features, they roll them out without fanfare and see if they do A-B testing and see if users pick them up or not and put out the occasional press release and get some influencers to have a look and take their time. But he wants to move so incredibly fast. He will take the risk on uh, being ostracized by advertisers, having his reputation dented, much in the same way his reputation was dented when he hit a, was it an axe on the window of his like armor car and it smashed <laughs> and it wasn't meant to smash, you know, in the same way his reputation might be dented when rockets flew off and things like that. But he will take that on in order to progress quickly. Yeah. So, so I think there's a, f- a few things here. I'm not sure if it's that he wants to move fast or he just has a different perspective. So with regards to the safety of it, like in engineering, there are safety integrity levels, which you have different levels depending on the risk, the potential risk of failure, the, the risk of it going wrong. And, and you work all this out by working out mean time failure rates. So like how, how long until a wing falls off an aircraft? And then you work within a, a safety parameter. And when you design the, the, uh, the software, you've got to prove that it meets all these you know, qualification criteria. And in financial markets, there's all these rules and regulations. It's all centralized. There's, and in engineering, we have all these standards so that you know like, when a dishwasher arrives at the door, like it's going to fit through the doorway because it's designed like doorways have to be a certain size, dishwashers are a certain size. You know, we, we have all this standardization in place. With this kind of thing, it's it's only a social expectation that this is how it should be done. And companies only roll out those things iteratively to protect their own downside risk, as you as you rightly say, like that. But it's a financial incentive. He's not stood on the train platform as a train's going past at 100 miles an hour, going, "Oh my god, this is shaky." He stood five miles out, going, "Okay, well, in 20 years, this is where I want to be." And so the fastest way from A to B is in a straight line. And yeah, okay, we're going to have to mow down some houses, and you know, it be a bit messy a day to day. But he he has that size view and also we've seen he's got the financial resource and the financial backing to to take on that risk so if we're talking about true optimization like and and we're optimizing for the outcome which i even if we just said a financial outcome because we don't actually know what elon wants here we think he probably wants a cuddle and to be loved by his dad like (laughs) that's probably the problem like but let's say this is a, a financial thing he's optimized to hell and 
yeah, okay, you might crash someone's share price. Well, there's no law or regulation against that. Yeah, he might have like some big social influence. Well, that, that's free speech. Like that's that's the nature of it. And and I think that I'm not politically well versed enough, and I wish I was much more culturally attuned to to appreciate the difference between communism and capitalism. I think in the world that we promote and live in, you've got to let people do crazy, even if the results are really poor. Like to put too much regulation, too much like constraint around this is a dangerous rhetoric in my opinion and I wish I could speak to the politics of it but I can't. Well I think that just takes us to the kind of like maybe a nice ending for this because we could talk about what what's to become right of of Twitter and like what's the end game really in terms of what's going on at the moment because everything we've talked about today could just go wildly out of date <laughs> really soon. Um, there's a few different scenarios right and, and one of them is that Letting everybody back on the platform without consequence will encourage hate speech. And, you know, terrorist groups, hate speech groups can have a platform to voice, you know, how they feel about certain individuals and things in the world and, and not have consequence, right? Unless it breaks the law. And that's not okay. That can't happen. That 100% isn't okay because marginalised people won't feel that they can go to Twitter and have a voice and have a community and that will be really sad because then it becomes an echo chamber, you know, only the angry people will be on there talking to the angry people. And in a way, can the angry people learn from the people that they're demonising? Of course they can, you know, the world can become a better place, you know, if people can see each other's viewpoints. But if you've got, you know, obviously I follow a lot of feminists on there who are on Twitter because I'm a middle-aged feminist woman myself, who talk about having rape threats, you know, just because they've talked about football in a certain way or something like that, right? You know, stuff like that isn't cool. So, you know, there is a lot of work to do to make sure we don't go back to the the state that Twitter was around about the, the height of Trumpism, I think. And, you know, I know there's some features that Musk is... Uh, aiming to put out like community notes which is like a a wikipedia add-on to every tweet that they're testing in the u.s at the moment and i love that because then that gives everyone a chance to have an argument in the comments a little bit like being on reddit or something like that and to fact check things right but also to to try and stop anonymous trolling bot accounts you know spamming people trying to verify people maybe the blue check might solve that maybe it might not but it, it remains to be seen but that that's my worry that that association that people have with twitter being a cesspit will continue and it will only show the worst side of humanity not the best yeah looking at it from a pure tech perspective i completely agree with you there's a, a few things that come to mind that there are mechanisms for verifying people's id that banking use it's about two pound fifty it's probably about three dollars to do the kyc know your customer like that's where you verify someone's identity and you know in the instance that you talk about where some you know poor woman has got a rape threat for you know saying something fairly innocuous in that instance we don't have the centralized systems that we all know love and trust in policing that can deal with this but again like it's a difficult problem that hasn't got an easy answer in my opinion if you give a centralized system, the, the ability to police something like Twitter, that's a dangerous road to go down because like, well, who makes those rules? Who makes those laws? And they're, you know, we're, we're all non-consenting members of society. We didn't vote in a lot of the laws we live by because they're 
predate when we were even born. And then you go, well, well, where's it? Where else? Who is who is solving this problem? And you go look at China and the you know social credit system that they're developing, and you go, okay, well, they've got some real clever software there that is monitoring the people and how they live and whether they're conforming to the laws that you know are deemed to be right or wrong. And and you maybe you could rebaseline those laws to align with our societal thing. But but you then put all that power, all that control in one central place and. And I think where you have problems, where you have opposing views, I wonder how much of it is a feature of our society that is a good thing. Like at the extremes, it's terrible, like and terrible consequences that are not acceptable in any way. Is that what I wonder? Is that the cost? Is there an answer there? Because it it's good in the middle to have opposing views when when it gets out of hand, like clearly not okay. The technical brain inside of me is going, how the hell do you solve that problem? Like that's it's a genuinely difficult problem. Yeah, you, well, you're trying to optimize society, right? This has gone beyond optimizing a business. How do you optimize human behavior? How do you optimize society? And like, I am, I am for one here for it. I will be on Twitter with my popcorn, watching how people behave. And, you know, I, I've seen things pop up that make me feel better about Elon Musk being in charge. Like he's really keen on getting rid of like anything to do with child pornography, child exploitation on the platform. And, you know, and every time people, you can DM him and, and, and retweet about injustices and these things are popping up they're getting in front of him you know he's they're getting attention so you know the, the hope is that like he will be able to make the severe part of what's wrong with twitter right like the against the law side of what wrong with twitter correct and then we'll see what happens in the messy middle but should, should he be doing that you know that that's it's a really interesting thing like hang on a minute like hundred percent if something is against the law a platform like twitter where it's owned by an individual who can ultimately make all the decisions right this isn't share owned and a shareholder owned anymore you know he does put polls out to people and, and ask them what they think for sure but there is no way as a business owner you'd be thinking yeah it, free speech includes breaking the law like absolutely not you know and so there's a fine line right no, child abuse imagery is 100% against the law. And like a, a business should do everything in their power and more to make sure that they do not promote that in any way, shape or form. Porn, well, porn's, porn's okay. It's not against the law. People are happy with it. There's consenting adults who are really okay with it. So, you know, you, you have to understand the the kind of the line that, that sort of fits in the middle. By the way, super clear to 100%, I think 99.999% of people where that line is, right? Just to be really clear. But, I, you know, I can't see him being okay with snuff films being on, on Twitter. You know, like there, there is a very clear sense of right and wrong, I think, from a moral point of view. But then he's got this other technical problem, like you've got different laws around the world. So which laws are, you, you know, like that's a technically difficult thing to implement. That's to come. Yeah, that's to come, I think, because at the moment, I think trying to solve the left and right issue in America and trying to stop it being so polarized, I think that's a big problem. If they can solve that there, then and only then should they be going out and interfering with what's going on in other countries, I think, as well, you know, and understanding are women being repressed, are different minority groups being repressed and and kind of how to solve that. Yeah, I mean, that's that w remains to be seen. That's all to come, isn't it? And the other thing that could happen with Twitter is it, it could just break 100%. We've heard all of these stories about the, 
there not being enough of the right people in charge anymore, the technical debt that you spoke of. There might be just someone peddling in the back storeroom to keep Twitter going for all we know. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, if that happens, he'll fix it. Like, the reason that I got turned on to this guy was around SpaceX and they were uh, updating safety critical software. So this is like stuff that stops the the most important software on their space rockets half an hour before takeoff. That's a really difficult thing to do. He can solve really difficult technical problems. Yeah, he might take this fast road that we spoke about where he'd crack a few eggs from an engineering point of view, I've got belief that he can solve those problems. I think the problem that we've not seen him solve yet is this social political problem meets engineering. Like that's a new one for him. Yeah. Do we want to summarize the episode? Yeah. Well, it could, it could be. I was going to say, like, the final thing is he just could go bankrupt. He could just run out of money, and he t- he spoke about that as well. And so it could be that you know it's just best for him and for everyone else to just just put it back to the big business in the sky. So who knows what's going to happen? Yeah, he could float it again, couldn't he? And make a load of money. So if you enjoyed this episode, because we definitely did, please like, subscribe, comment below, let us know what you think if you're on YouTube. If you listen on Spotify, please uh, rate the podcast uh, however you feel it should be rated. And please head over to YouTube and, and check us out over there. Let us know what you think. We're both on Twitter as well. So I'm Hey Vicky Jakes, Vicky with an I. With a blue tick. I ha- I do have a blue tick. Do you have a blue tick, Sam Jacks? I don't. I don't. I Only because I just haven't got around to it. <laughs> I will do as soon as I get around to it. I wanted to see how it all works, essentially. So... And now, and now I know. You basically, the best part about a blue tick is you get to delay posting your tweets by about half a minute. So if you mess up, you can undo it and undo it again. Oh, oh, we should we should have a chat about that. <laughs> I really enjoyed um, uh, talking about this today. Um, it's going to go wildly out of date really quickly. So I'm sure we'll come back and see how Musk is doing with his optimization of Twitter, you know, over the, the kind of coming episodes. What's our intro for this then? How Musk has made £10 million in a day since starting Twitter? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's more like how Musk is crash bang optimizing Twitter in front of several hundred million users. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Musk making omelets. That's what he's doing. Yeah. How Musk is cracking eggs and uh, making enemies. Today, that sounds more like it at the moment. Oh, it? yeah. I like that. We're cracking eggs <laughs> and making enemies. What's that? Taking names and, and making enemies? Take, yeah. I, uh, into that. Cool. Thank you.